television is where all the big risks are being taken, where the most exciting work is happening. And this is a festival that celebrates that. Finally, there's an independent avenue for people who want to just go into the TV business. It's just wonderful to have an outlet for all of the creativity that's happening in television and in new digital media right now. The fact that there's this, there's Series Fest, which allows you to put it in front of an audience and gives you a platform to put it out there. Like that's the most impactful thing as artists that we can ever hope for. Hello, this is Claire Taylor, the Director of Programming at Series Fest. I'm super excited to be welcoming our listeners to Series Fest Season 7 and the first ever Next in Queue, a special spotlight on podcasts. At the heart of our festival are the independent content creators. And over the past year, the art form of audio storytelling has taken them to new heights. This spotlight features four original series, including... Three's Company's Adventure Department, Feminist Foremothers, The Seriously Darkest Timeline, and Where the Hell Am I? Make sure to check out the Q&As with all of our podcast creators, which follow the episodes, and I hope you enjoy the extended listen into the innovative creation behind all of these selections. Enjoy. Welcome to Feminist Foremothers, a Mama Film Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Christensen. You're listening to a series about the cultural legacies of three complex women, Carrie Nation, Hattie McDaniel, and Rosie the Riveter. Each made history, and they still exert influence today. Join us as we touch on Black American Migration, Ryan Murphy's Hollywood, the 1991 film Daughters of the Dust, and, of course, Gone with the Wind. This is Episode 2, Hattie McDaniel, Hollywood Icon. She may have died almost 70 years ago, but Hattie McDaniel has had a lot going on lately. Of course, she was an icon, and icons enjoy an eventful afterlife right here on Earth. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit about Mama Film. In 2019, Leela Meadow Connor brought independent movies by and about women to her microcinema in Wichita, Kansas. Since then, she's collaborated on projects such as the Repro Film Festival and the Mothership Screenwriters Lab. This podcast was launched as part of Mama Film's 2021 partnership with the Sundance Film Festival. To learn more about Mama Film and purchase tickets to upcoming shows, visit mama.film. Hattie's eventful 2020 began in May with the release of Ryan Murphy's Netflix miniseries Hollywood, an alternate history of the film industry in the late 1940s. In Murphy's invented past, a ragtag group of outsiders changes the movie business and America forever. Queen Latifah guest stars as Hattie McDaniel, who lives to see a bright young black actor break new ground of her own. Not long after, Warner Media launched HBO Max, a streaming service that includes content from its various subsidiaries, not just HBO. For example, you can watch Turner Classic Movies on the new platform. 
and the TCM catalog includes the highest grossing film of all time, Gone with the Wind, starring Hattie McDaniel in her Oscar-winning part. HBO Max was in its early days when the Los Angeles Times published an op-ed by writer, director, and fellow Oscar winner John Ridley. He won in 2014 for his adaptation of the memoir, 12 Years a Slave. Ridley called on Warner Media to pull Gone with the Wind. He argued that the film glorifies the antebellum South and perpetuates painful stereotypes of people of color. But at the same time, Ridley wasn't advocating for the film to be, quote, relegated to a vault in Burbank. Instead, he proposed that Warner Media present the movie with a little bit more context. Ridley pretty much got what he asked for. The day after his LA Times piece, Warner Media removed Gone with the Wind from HBO Max. It returned about two weeks later with a short introduction from historian and TCM host Jacqueline Stewart. Hattie was born in Wichita, so around here she's in the news on a semi-regular basis. In September of 2019, I heard a story about her on my local public radio station. In the segment, Carla Burns discusses Hattie's legacy with Carla Eccles, KMUW's Director of Diversity, News, and Engagement. Carla, where are we at right now? We are at the site of Hattie McDaniel's home. You know, it's not here anymore, but this is the site of her birthplace, 925 North Wichita. Like Hattie, Burns was born in Wichita, about 10 blocks from the McDaniel's old address. Both women began performing in church and both played the role of Queenie in the musical Showboat. Burns was nominated for a Tony and she took home a Drama Desk Award for her performance in the early 80s Broadway revival. In 1982, Burns appeared in an hour-long showboat television special hosted by Merv Griffin. This role of Queenie is not unfamiliar to my next guest. She has, uh, it's tailor-made for her. She's been playing this role for something like 10 years. She's almost made a career out of the role of uh, Queenie, and she is good. And here singing Hey Feller is Carla Burns. Carla? You can find the whole thing on YouTube. It includes a brief interview with Burns, whom Griffin is clearly charmed by. We'll also drop a link to the video in our show notes. In the 90s, Burns won a Laurence Olivier Award, again for playing Queenie, this time in London. The Olivier is Britain's most prestigious theater award, and Carla Burns was the first black person to receive one. It's just another connection between the two Wichita-born performers. That connection has grown stronger than ever since Burns first began performing Hi-Hat Hattie, a one-woman show by Larry Parr based on the life of the Oscar-winning icon. The musical includes one memorable scene in which Burns sings both parts of the duet, As Still Suits Me, from Showboat. The role has deepened Burns' appreciation for Hattie. Here's another clip from her KMEW interview. 
she really paved the way. I mean, she was a singer, actor, dancer. She was everything that I knew I wanted to be heading into my education. She was the one that I wanted to fashion my life after. Unlike Hattie, Carla Burns grew up in Wichita. She attended West High School and graduated from Wichita State. The McDaniels moved a few years after their youngest daughter was born. There's no real evidence that Hattie's time in Wichita directly influenced her entertainment career. But her family did play an important role in the history of Kansas. Part 1. Exodus Hattie's father, Henry McDaniel, was born into slavery in Virginia. He never knew his parents, so he didn't know the exact year of his birth. He began performing forced labor at the age of five. When he was nine, Henry and two of his siblings were sold to another enslaver, and they wound up in Tennessee. That's where Henry was when the Civil War began. He was in his early 20s, and as soon as they were able, he and his brother joined the 2nd Colored Regiment of the United States Army. Henry was hospitalized for severe frostbite during his service. During the Battle of Nashville, an explosion shattered his jaw. He never received medical attention for his injuries, which left him at least partially disabled for the rest of his life. After the federal government ended Reconstruction, life in Tennessee became increasingly difficult for freed people. After the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan and the establishment of Jim Crow laws, the American South was a dangerous and difficult place for black citizens. Henry and his wife Susan were living in Nashville in the late 1870s when they began hearing promising rumors. Benjamin Papp Singleton, who worked as an undertaker in Nashville, was promoting Kansas as a sort of new promised land for black Americans. As the birthplace of John Brown, Kansas was a powerful symbol for formerly enslaved people. The radical abolitionists led free staters into battle against pro-slavery forces in the 1850s. This violent period is known as Bleeding Kansas, and Brown and his allies ensured that Kansas entered the Union as a free state. In 1879, about 6,000 freed people made their way from the lower Mississippi Delta to Kansas. The first mass migration of black Americans was called the Great Exodus, and the migrants earned the name Exodusters. They saw themselves as modern-day Israelites whose long period of wandering would be rewarded. Some freed people found success in Kansas, but it wasn't the paradise that Exodusters like the McDaniels were hoping for. Although the state passed an anti-discrimination law in the 1870s, many white residents were not pleased by the influx of migrants. Land was either unaffordable or inhospitable, and jobs were hard to come by. The McDaniels lived in Manhattan for a time, then in Baxter Springs, where Pap Singleton failed to create an all-black community. Exodusters did establish some communities in Kansas, however. The best known is Nicodemus, which holds two distinctions, as the first black settlement west of the Mississippi and the only remaining Western town founded by Black Americans during Reconstruction. The McDaniels moved to Wichita seven years after they first set foot in Kansas. 
They settled in a small but bustling black enclave centered around water and main streets, just north of the courthouse. In the 1920s, years after the McDaniels had moved on, black Wichitans began moving northeast. By the beginning of World War II, the heart of the community was the intersection of 9th and Cleveland. The Kansas African American Museum is the steward of Wichita's black history. It's located on Water Street in the former Calvary Baptist Church building, once the center of the old neighborhood. Museum visitors can view works from its collection of black and African art and learn about the black experience in Kansas. You can even take a self-guided walking tour of the area around the museum, which was once home to numerous black businesses, churches, and social clubs. While the McDaniels lived on Wichita Street, Henry worked for a contractor hauling bricks. His coworkers remembered him as a hard worker, but his war injuries soon made it impossible to keep a consistent work schedule. Shortly after the McDaniels arrived in Wichita, Henry hired a lawyer to help him file for a disability pension, which he qualified for because of his military service and related injuries. His application should have been a slam dunk, but the government pushed back. Henry was never treated for his shattered jaw, so there were no records of his battle injuries. This was a sticking point, despite sworn testimony from those who could corroborate Henry's war injuries. It took 18 years and numerous appeals until Henry was granted the measly sum of $6 a month. By then, the McDaniels had established themselves in Colorado. Many of their fellow exodusters moved on too. Denver had its own problems, and the McDaniels continued to struggle financially, but they joined a large and thriving black community. This is where many of the McDaniel children first established themselves as entertainers. Their place in Kansas history remains. Exodusters were the first large group of freed people to challenge their circumstances by changing their geography. They were not the last. From 1915 to 1970, nearly 6 million Black Americans left the South in a movement known as the Great Migration. Isabel Wilkerson chronicles this period in her book, The Warmth of Other Suns. In the following passage, she describes the calculations Black families had to make. From the early years of the 20th century to well past its middle age, Nearly every black family in the American South, which meant nearly every black family in America, had a decision to make. There were sharecroppers losing at settlement, typists wanting to work in an office, yard boys scared that a single gesture near the planter's wife could leave them hanging from an oak tree. They were all stuck in a caste system as hard and unyielding as the red Georgia clay, and they each had a decision before them. In this, they were not unlike anyone who ever longed to cross the Atlantic or the Rio Grande. While working on this podcast, I took a break to read a recent novel, Brandon Taylor's Real Life, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year. The main character is Wallace, a black queer PhD student at a Midwestern research university. Wallace is an outsider in all kinds of ways. He grew up in poverty, he's the first person in his family to graduate from college, and he's the only black student in his program. 
I surely wouldn't have connected Taylor's novel to Hattie McDaniel's story if I hadn't been engaged with both at the same time. But real life is partly about negotiating an existence in mostly white spaces, so I couldn't help but think of Hattie. In one scene, Wallace shares his childhood trauma with a new lover. And in a passage about moving on, I heard an echo of the black migrant experience. I didn't think I could do it justice. So here's my friend, Julius. When I left it behind me, when I got the money to go to school and get away, I sealed it all behind me. Because when you go to another place, you don't have to carry the past with you. You can lay it down. You can leave it for the ants. There comes a time when you have to stop being who you were, when you have to let the past stay where it is, frozen and impossible. You have to let it go if you're going to keep moving, if you're going to survive. Because the past doesn't need a future. It has no use for what comes next. The past is greedy, always swallowing you up, always taking. If you don't hold it back, If you don't dam it up, it will spread and take and drown. The past is not a receding horizon. Rather, it advances one moment at a time, marching steadily forward until it has claimed everything and we become again who we were. We become ghosts when the past catches us. I can't live as long as my past does. It's one or the other. In The Warmth of Other Suns, Wilkerson quotes the academic John Dollard, who studied the South in the late 1930s. He wrote, Oftentimes, just to go away is one of the most aggressive things another person can do. He said, Leaving is a form of resistance. What is remarkable is that some of the McDaniel children kept that spirit of resistance alive. They kept moving to pursue new opportunities until they finally got to their version of the promised land, Hollywood. Part two, a happy ending for Hattie. Consider yourself warned. This section contains spoilers for the Netflix miniseries, Hollywood. In 1931, Hattie moved to Tinseltown. She was 36 and her resume already included two decades of professional experience. Hattie was the youngest in a family full of performers. As a teenager, she began performing in her brother Otis's Black Minstrel Troupe. Later, she launched her own all-women group with one of her sisters. She performed in nightclubs and recorded blues tracks. Hattie McDaniel was the first Black woman to sing on the radio. Three of Hattie's older siblings were already trying to establish Hollywood careers. Sam McDaniel had a gig on a radio show called The Optimistic Donut Hour, and Hattie joined the cast as the character High Hat Hattie, a bossy maid. During her first years in California, she worked as a maid in between film and radio jobs, almost all of which called on her to play the role of a domestic worker. Even after her Oscar, she continued to play similar roles. Over the course of her career, Hattie played a maid more than 70 times. 
Hattie McDaniel is first mentioned in the second episode of Ryan Murphy's miniseries, Hollywood. The story begins in the late 1940s, a few years after Hattie's historic Oscar win. Young studio actress Camille Washington, played by Laura Harrier, is studying elocution alongside other Hollywood hopefuls when she gets her first speaking role in the fictional Ace Studios' newest picture. Except she wasn't chosen for her talent. Camille is black, and her so-called big break is playing a maid. The actress delivers her first lines in the mid-Atlantic accent she's been studying, but that's not what the director is looking for. Cut! Let's do a pickup. I, I just want to do one more. Can we do the line a little more funny? Is it a joke? Or just think, what, what would Hattie McDaniel do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to one! Everybody take your places! In the second take, Camille affects a servile posture and delivers the line in a broad, sing-songy southern accent. Her adjustment is met with approval. Camille Washington is fictional, like most of the main characters in the series. Dozens of real 1940s directors, producers, and stars appear as minor characters, and a handful fall somewhere in between fact and fiction. These include stars Rock Hudson, Anna Mae Wong, and Hattie McDaniel. Each was a real person, but their storylines revolve around fabricated narratives. Murphy gives Hudson an emotionally satisfying life as an out gay man, which involves a loving relationship with a talented screenwriter. Wong gets the part and the plaudits she deserves. Hattie's rewrite isn't quite so dramatic. She has to settle for being Camille's mentor. As viewers, we're to understand that seeing the younger woman become a huge star is enough of a happy ending for Hattie. Is this Camille Washington? Speaking. You don't know me, but my name is Hattie McDaniel. It's Hattie McDaniel. Uh, Yes, uh, of course I know who you are, Miss McDaniel. Well, look, I've been reading about you in the trades, and my heart just about jumped out of my chest. I never thought we'd make the leap in this country, but here we are. Now, am I to understand that you are playing the lead role in a studio picture? That is correct. So she's the romantic lead, not a fucking maid. No, ma'am, it's the lead role. Well, motherfucker, praise be! I am so proud of you. But you should know it is gonna be rough. I've been through it, Hollywood. So if you need anything, darling, just ask me, all right? Ryan Murphy said he wanted to create a happy ending for these real people who surely deserved better from Hollywood. I understand the impulse, although I'm certain Hattie would have written herself a different kind of happily ever after. After all, she was still working during this period, and she was disappointed by the mostly crummy parts she was offered after her Oscar win. When Gone with the Wind was in the news last year, Anthony Bresnikan rehashed an interview he conducted with Olivia de Havilland in 2004. That year, Warner Home Video released a four-disc commemorative DVD of the film. 
to Haviland played Scarlett's sister-in-law, Melanie Wilkes. She was also nominated for an Oscar in the same category as Hattie. Ultimately, producer David O. Selznick campaigned for McDaniel, not de Havilland. I've wondered about that. Was Selznick trying to prove something, or was this an act of penance? It's not as though his blockbuster movie just recently fell out of favor. Black Americans registered their objections well before the movie started shooting. Some community leaders appealed to Selznick directly, and the producer was well aware of the outcry in the black press. At the same time, Hattie received positive reviews. Several black journalists encouraged their readers to write Selznick to ask that she be considered for the industry's highest honor. According to the 2004 interview with de Havilland, both she and Selznick knew the results before the award ceremony. In those days, an accounting firm didn't safeguard the names of the winners. De Havilland said that Selznick had a spy, but actually the Los Angeles Times just leaked the news. The obvious question is, did Hattie know in advance? De Havilland says no. She was already at the hotel where the ceremony would take place. Whereas de Havilland, Selznick, Vivian Lee, and Clark Gable would arrive fashionably late. They were pre-gaming the ceremony at Selznick's house. The cast didn't sit together that night either. The Ambassador Hotel was whites only. The management agreed to sit Hattie and her escort at their own table at the periphery of the room. I've heard Hattie's acceptance speech before, but not the introduction by Faye Bainter, who presented the award. Let's listen to both. I'm really especially happy that I'm chosen to present this particular plaque. To me, it seems more than just a plaque of gold. It opens the doors of this room, moves back the walls, and enables us to embrace the whole of America, an America that we love, an America that almost alone in the world today recognizes and pays tribute to those who give their best, regardless of creed, race, or color. It is with the knowledge that this entire nation will stand and salute the presentation of this plaque that I present the Academy Award for the best performance of an actress in supporting roles during 1939 to Hattie McDaniel. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, fellow members of the motion picture industry and honored guests. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you. <laughs> like Hollywood the miniseries, Bainter's speech creates a convenient, progressive-sounding fiction. And like Faye Bainter, the series is practically bursting with its own self-importance. It centers around the fictional movie Meg, which depicts an interracial romance between two struggling actors. 
Not only does the picture get made, it's released across the country, becomes an enormous hit, and nets a ton of Oscars, including a Best Actress win for Camille. The miniseries even hints that the film's success may have solved racism. Racial protests across the country simply melted away as thousands rushed out to see a new kind of motion picture and moviegoers of every color have fallen in love. Every woman I know who saw it cried. We understood how she was feeling. Could one movie change the way a nation sees itself? Who knows? But one thing's for sure, America's mad for... I do understand why Ryan Murphy wanted to give Hattie a rewrite. Like, let's go back to that Anthony Bresnikan interview with Olivia de Havilland. As recently as last summer, this guy framed it as full of fun, behind-the-scenes tidbits about a historic Hollywood moment. But my takeaway is that on the most important night of her life, Hattie's co-workers excluded her. And during her moment of triumph... Hollywood couldn't resist the opportunity to pat itself on the back. Then I think about other indignities. Hattie didn't attend the premiere of Gone with the Wind in Atlanta because the theater wouldn't seat black people. Before her death, this groundbreaking actress asked to be buried in the Hollywood Cemetery. But her wishes weren't honored because in the early 50s, the cemetery was whites only. And although Hattie counted many of her white colleagues as friends, only the actor James Cagney attended her funeral. Hattie McDaniel made history when she won her Oscar, and nothing and no one can ever take that away from her. But the award didn't represent a breakthrough for Hattie, who ended her career playing a yet another maid in the TV series Beulah. And it wasn't an immediate harbinger of change for the film industry either. It would be more than 50 years until another black woman won an Academy Award for acting. So yeah, who wouldn't want to rewrite the heck out of all that? But ultimately, the movie industry failed Hattie while she was alive. It's simply too late to give her a happy ending, as appealing as that idea sounds. Perhaps at this point, it's better to think about how best to honor her. Here's one very small way. Cue up a classic film about the black migrant experience. Part three, Daughters of the Dust. 30 years ago, Julie Dash's first full-length film debuted at the Sundance Film Festival, where it was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize. Like Hattie, Dash broke new ground. Daughters of the Dust was the first feature film directed by a black woman to obtain wide release in the U.S. It follows the Pizant family through a day and a half in 1902. They're preparing to leave a Gullah community in one of Georgia's barrier islands. Like Henry and Susan McDaniel a quarter century before, the Pizants plan to leave the South in search of a freer and more prosperous life. That's all except Nana Pizant, the family matriarch played by Coralie Day. In one scene, she begs her grandson Eli, played by Adisa Anderson, to honor his heritage and keep the family together in their new home. Eli, I'm trying to learn you how to touch your own spirit. 
I'm fighting for my life and I'm fighting for yawn. Look at my face. I'm trying to give you something to take north with you, along with all your great big dreams. Call on those old Africans, Eli. They come to you when you least expect They hug you up quick and soft as the warm, sweet wind. Let them old souls come into your heart, Eli. Let them touch you with the hand of time. Let them feed your head with wisdom that ain't from this day in time. Because when you leave this island, Eli Pazet, you ain't going to no land of milk and honey. Eli, I'm putting my trust in you to keep the family together up north. That's the challenge we'll face all you Negro people who are free. Celebrate our ways. Gullah communities have successfully passed down their dialect and food ways, both of which are central elements in Daughters of the Dust. Dash's own ancestors inspired the film, which he also wrote and co-produced on a budget of less than a million dollars. Like the Pizants, Dash's father's family migrated north in the early 20th century. Nana spent the first part of her life in slavery, and the film alludes to plenty of horrors. One of the stories Dash weaves through the nonlinear narrative is the legend of the Igbo landing mass suicide. At the same time, Daughters of the Dust is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Carrie James Marshall, now considered one of the most important painters of his generation, served as the production designer. Another artist, Arthur Jaffa, won the Excellence in Cinematography Award at Sundance for his work on the film. Beyonce's visual album Lemonade is partly inspired by their work. Not long after the album dropped, Daughters of the Dust returned to theaters. It is widely considered one of the most important movies of the 20th century, and it's included in the National Film Registry. Hattie McDaniel and Julie Dash are often mentioned together in stories about groundbreaking figures in the history of black film. As far as I know, Dash wasn't thinking of Hattie when she created her masterwork but in telling an original story about black migration that is entirely devoid of cliche. Daughters of the Dust honors the millions of black Americans for whom migration is a crucial part of their family history. Interlude. Follow, unfollow, or pause for 30 days. Every episode we ask, how would this particular foremother conduct herself on social media? Would Hattie McDaniel be an automatic follow or no? For me, I mean, of course. Of our three initial foremothers, Hattie is the one I'd be most interested to see on social media. The first episode covered the prohibitionist Carrie Nation, and I stand by my conviction that she would be great on Twitter. But Carrie would be simply translating her combative communication style to a new context. 
I mean, she founded two magazines, wrote an autobiography, and delivered numerous speeches. We have a pretty good sense of her whole deal. Hattie, on the other hand, had to walk a very fine line when she spoke publicly. She was careful not to jeopardize her position in Hollywood, but she also deeply cared about her standing in the Black community. When she was criticized for playing racial stereotypes, she famously shot back, I'd rather play a maid than be a maid. Hattie had the ability to gracefully shut people all the way down in a way that reminds me a little bit of the comedian Z-Way. But clearly TikTok would be her ideal platform. Part 4. Lost Cause In her new introduction to Gone with the Wind, Jacqueline Stewart says that watching the movie can be uncomfortable, even painful. Boy, is she right about that. The movie announces its racist, revisionist intentions from the very beginning. Right after the opening credits, this text crawls across the screen over an instrumental arrangement of Dixie. There is a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. Ugh. Later in a scene famous for its cinematography, Scarlet searches for Dr. Mead in Atlanta. The crane shot slowly withdraws, revealing the bodies of hundreds of dead and injured soldiers. Then the camera lovingly pans over a waving Confederate flag, the same one some of my fellow Americans still fly. Gone with the Wind presents its black characters, including Hattie McDaniel's Mammy, as singularly motivated to serve their enslavers. Mammy is a formidable woman Yet her entire identity is wrapped up in service of Tara and its white residents. We don't learn her backstory. We don't even know her real name. I hadn't seen Gone with the Wind in 30 years, and I barely remembered it. I thought it was a silly, pretty romance that conveniently skips over all the bad parts of the Confederacy. Well, I could not have been more wrong. The film adaptation doesn't include some of the worst parts of the novel, such as its portrayal of the Ku Klux Klan as a necessary peacekeeping force. But the movie commits at least as many sins as it ignores. Author Margaret Mitchell was born in 1900, well after the end of the Civil War. Her grandfather was a Confederate soldier, and she grew up hearing glorified war stories. Supposedly, she was shocked when she finally learned, at the age of 10, that the Secessionist South had actually lost. By the turn of the century, the Confederacy had gone through what we might now refer to as a rebranding. It was called the Lost Cause of the Confederacy. The Lost Cause was predicated on a series of falsehoods about the antebellum South. 
It holds that the Civil War was about preserving a way of life. Adherents of the lost cause want you to know that the war wasn't really about slavery that much at all. They would even have you believe that slavery was an institution that benefited the enslaved, as well as enslavers. The efforts of ex-Confederates were vindicated when the United States Army named its new southern bases after Confederate generals. Ten Army bases still retain those names. During his presidency, Donald Trump insisted that they must remain that way, as the generals are, quote, part of a great American heritage. In some quarters, the lost cause is alive and well, and Margaret Mitchell's novel is one of its central texts. Having rewatched Gone with the Wind, I am ashamed to say that I was kind of obsessed with it when I was in eighth grade. I lugged the novel around in my backpack, the mass market paperback edition with Rhett and Scarlett passionately embracing on the cover. It seemed like the longest book that was ever written, and finishing it felt like a major intellectual achievement, which I guess is something that I was concerned about in eighth grade. I can't believe I missed all the red flags. I certainly wasn't taught that Confederates were tragic yet admirable, or that slavery wasn't really that bad. The more I thought about it, though, the more I recalled hearing bits and pieces of the lost cause. For example, that Robert E. Lee was a patriot, despite the fact that he led an army against his fellow citizens. I found another clue, a young adult book I read in middle school called Gone with the Witch. The Scholastic paperback is number three in the Teen Witch series by Megan Barnes. The book's protagonist, Sarah, is a 13-year-old witch-in-training living in Southern California. She becomes obsessed with the movie version of Gone with the Wind and accidentally transports herself and her best friend Mickey to a pre-Civil War-era Georgia plantation. I suspect this stupid book is what turned me on to Gone with the Wind in the first place. Like me, Sarah was particularly interested in the clothes. Barnes writes, She wished she'd been around then to wear beautiful gowns with wide hoop skirts. She could have rivaled Scarlett O'Hara in high spirits and excellent taste, she was sure. And the men back then. Boys no older than her boyfriend David, wearing those impressive gray uniforms with boots. Once Sarah travels back to 1860, she's tempted to stay because of the gowns and the balls and a young Confederate soldier who catches her eye. The enslaved people who work this Georgia plantation barely rate a mention. When they do, Sarah justifies herself with the thought that they will soon be freed people. Sarah's only real critiques of Civil War-era Southern culture are about gender norms. She's much more concerned with the limitations on her own freedoms than the fact that her new lifestyle is predicated on the labor of enslaved people. Ironically, Teen Witch No. 3 was published in 1989, the very same year Kimberly Crenshaw first used the term intersectionality. Gone with the Witch isn't the first young adult book to reference Gone with the Wind. In S.E. Hinton's 1964 YA classic The Outsiders, Johnny and Ponyboy read the novel together while they're hiding out. I found two other young adult novels that use Mitchell's book as a plot device. Decades after the publication of Gone with the Wind, they repackaged the lost cause for a young, uncritical audience. In an essay for the online literary magazine Electric Literature, 
Meg Ellison writes about Gone with the Wind's mythology of whiteness. Like me, Ellison first read it as a child, but she continued to reread the book throughout her adolescence and early adulthood. Every time she revisited it, more of the novel's text and subtext revealed itself. Ellison advocates for another kind of revision. She writes, It takes literacy and critical thinking and listening to people of color to realize that not only is Gone with the Wind fiction, but most of what you know is fiction. Your family history is fiction. Your elementary school textbooks are fiction. Your construction of yourself is fiction. We all have to read ourselves more than once. We have to proofread and edit ourselves. We have to rewrite ourselves every day. We have to learn to separate truth from fiction, from fake news. This is a monumental task and most of us will fail. Epilogue, Legacy. I shouldn't end this podcast without mentioning something else about Gone with the Wind. Hattie McDaniel is great in it. Now you might be thinking, duh, Emily, she won an Oscar. To which I would say, listen, plenty of Oscar winners turned in not so great work. But Hattie's performance is grounded, even modern. Vivian Lee and Clark Gable chew the scenery, theatrically uttering their lines. But there's a timelessness to Hattie McDaniel's acting. She said she felt connected to this character, and that's easy to believe when you watch her move through the film, doing incredible work with what she was given. When I think about how best to honor Hattie's legacy, I keep going back to Meg Ellison's rewriting metaphor. This is not the rewriting of the miniseries Hollywood, which merely obscures the past. This kind of rewriting, making things right, can only happen in the present. That might look like contending with the legacy of Gone with the Wind, as Ellison did in her Electric Literature essay, as Spike Lee did in his 2018 film Black Klansman. That movie opens on the famous street scene with the waving Confederate battle flag. Rewriting might look like watching and reading and listening to the work of Black artists and creators, or learning about the history of the Black community where you live. It could also look like honoring Hattie McDaniel in the city where she was born. That 2019 local public radio story was about Hattie's lack of recognition in Wichita. The Kansas African American Museum has been raising funds for a new historical marker at the location of the McDaniels' Wichita home. According to Denise Sherman, the museum's executive director, they plan to go forward with installation in March. The date hasn't been set yet, but you can find updates on the museum's Facebook page and website. There you can also contribute to a special fund that will be used to cover the costs of the marker. Meanwhile, you can see another tribute to Hattie on the side of the historic Dunbar Theater, near the intersection of 9th and Cleveland. Priscilla Brown's Horizontes Project mural includes a portrait of Hattie, alongside fellow comedy legends Moms Mabley, and Richard Pryor. I hope that Wichita will continue to find ways to honor Hattie McDaniel and her family, because the McDaniels did play an important role in Kansas history. 
because Otis and Sam and Ed and McDaniel were brave and ambitious and talented performers. And of course, because Hattie was an icon. It seems only fitting to give Carla Burns the last word. Here's one final clip from her 2019 interview with Carla Eccles on KMUW. I talk about Hattie McDaniel in every single lecture that I do, everywhere that I go, because she's an important Wichitan, she's an important Kansan, she's an important icon, she's a legend in the world of performing. The first African-American person to be nominated for and to win an Academy Award. How special is that? There will never be another first. It was Hattie McDaniel from Wichita, Kansas. Thanks for listening to Feminist Foremothers, a Mama Film podcast. Feminist Foremothers is written and hosted by Emily Christensen, produced by Emily Christensen and Leela Meadow-Connor, and edited by Kylie Brown. The illustrations are by artist Hannah Scott, who made portraits of each foremother for this podcast. Sharp observers will catch our own minor rewriting of history. In Hannah's version, Hattie holds the traditional Oscar statue. In real life, winners in the supporting categories received smaller plaques. I guess we couldn't resist giving Hattie a little something extra. Big thanks to Julius Thomas III, the other Broadway performer you heard in this episode. He lent his voice to the passage from Brandon Taylor's novel, Real Life. And shout out to my radio role model, Carla Eccles, for her insight and encouragement. You can find me on Twitter at ShmemilyEmily. Shmemily is spelled S-C-H-M-E-M-I-L-Y. Find a complete transcript and check out our show notes at mama.film. The show notes include links to the movies, books, and articles discussed in this episode, plus further reading about Hattie McDaniel and some of the subjects we touched on. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the word, and I hope you'll join us for our last episode, at least our last episode for now. Look for it at the end of March. <laughs>